This week on a lively experiment, the governor's pick to join the Rhode Island Ethics Commission abruptly takes his name out of the running. We'll tell you why. And what present should police officers have in schools? We'll hear both sides of the argument. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, attorney and former state representative Nick Gorham. Harrison Tuttle, president of the Black Lives Matter Rhode Island Political Action Committee. And Steph Machado, Boston Globe reporter and Rhode Island PBS weekly contributor. Hello and welcome to Lively, I'm Jim Hummel. Governor McKee's pick for the State Ethics Commission had six women accuse him of sexual harassment, including town employees and a member of the school committee while he was on the South Kingstown Town Council. Intense media coverage of those incidents forced the resignation of Bryant DeCruz less than 24 hours after the allegations came to light and before he was scheduled to be sworn in. In perhaps the understatement of the year, the governor's office said the vetting process was not adequate. Nick, we've seen a lot of this before. Um, this one, I, I don't know what's worse, that maybe the governor's office knew about this and went ahead with it anyway, or maybe didn't know altogether. What, what's your take on this? Uh, well, it was a little odd. The, um, it, I, there's clearly a lack of uh, vetting, but one of the uh, things that I discovered, just looking at campaign finance, sometimes you can Because that's find what you the, do late at night. The, the DNA of um, appointments and things like that. I looked up... Um, the campaign donations of uh, Mr. DeCruz, and you know, he's made quite a few, but they're usually small. Uh, but just a few months before his appointment, he made a $1,000 donation to Governor McKee's campaign uh, back in April. So, um, you know, for someone being appointed to the Ethics Commission, that just seems like kind of a little bit of an anomaly, a little bit odd. So uh, may maybe it was um, on the wrong track from the beginning. What do you think, Harrison? Yeah, clearly this is another case in which, you know, we have constant mistakes going on in the governor's office here in Rhode Island, particularly this one. Sexual assault anywhere in any workplace should not be allowed, and, and the vetting process should have been better. And, you know, this is yet another bad look on our state when it comes to not going through the proper channels. And, you know, we've seen this with the armory and, and multiple cases of sexism and, and racism going on. And so this is yet another situation. And it's only highlighted by the fact that he was a potential appointee by the uh, Board of Ethics. Great, great reporting by the Globe. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's obviously an example of, of good journalism um, that brought to light this these allegations, which were alarming. But I, something that I learned from this was I don't actually realize that um, Ethics Commission members are appointed by the governor with no confirmation process. They're not confirmed by the Senate. And I'm not suggesting that they should be because that adds another <laughs> layer of politics, as we know. But it makes it even more important that they are very carefully vetted because they are appointed and then that's it. He would have sailed right through. The, the other thing, the skeptic in me from a reporter standpoint is, so this we taped last week. And then um, <clears throat> on Friday, right after this was all beginning to materialize, uh, it was kind of the governor's office did a quick mea culpa, and then I didn't really hear any follow-up. And all of a sudden, the independent man's coming down on Monday morning. So the next available uh, t 
time for reporters to talk to him was when? When the independent man was coming down. So that's the skeptic in me, but I never heard the governor really address this. It was kind of a quick statement and they tried to move on. Well, the stagecraft for independent man was pretty good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but still, um, yeah, I, I suppose he might have lined it up that way. But, I, you know, I think uh, what Harrison said is true. I mean, there have been a few of these kind of absent-minded appointments. I don't know how else to characterize it, uh, where they did not do their diligence. And um, luckily, you know, the press finds out about a lot of these things. Thank goodness for the press. You know, I think a lot of Rhode Islanders are frustrated, too, right? Because this kind of feeds into what people already think happen in and happens in government, which is I donate to your campaign and you appoint me to a big board position. Um, you know, it's just not a good look in the state. And, you know, I, I think in certain things like this, maybe it could entertain potential legislation in the General Assembly. See, people seem to be more blasé about that, Nick. I mean, it sounds like $1,000. Is it a quid pro quo? But, you know, whatever. But it seems like it's almost like you have to be a benefactor and there's so much pressure to raise money these days, that that seems like the very minimum. It didn't seem like that 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I, I don't know how you can regulate it. Uh, under the Supreme Court decisions, you know, it says people can give whatever they want, however much they want, to uh, the political causes they believe in. But, you know, when it's kind of blatant, um, I think people should know, and I think people can pass judgment themselves, uh, that's why we have elections. But. Uh, it would be very tough to regulate, I think, but um, I'm glad I found it. <laughs> yeah, the thousand. All right, there has been a lot of discussion both locally and nationwide about having school resource officers, uh, policemen in schools across the country, particularly with uh, the, um, the increasing number of school shootings. Our own Steph Machado here put together a story for Rhode Island PBS Weekly that you can see this weekend. We condensed it a little bit to set the table for the discussion. Here's a little bit of what Steph reported on. Rhode Island PBS Weekly asks superintendents across the state where they stand on having SROs in their districts. About half of those who got back to us said they'd prefer to have more SROs, ideally one at each school. There are roughly 65 SROs in Rhode Island and more than 300 public schools. Would you like to have an SRO in, in every school here in Lincoln? Ideally, that would, that would be nice. Having an SRO at every level really adds to the budget. So if a community is going to get behind it, they have to get behind it with funding as well. Recent polling shows support for SROs in Rhode Island. A University of Rhode Island survey released in October asked Rhode Island adults about a variety of policy topics, including if they would support legislation to provide state funding for police officers in schools. 57% of those polled either strongly or somewhat approved, while 15% strongly or somewhat disapproved, and 22% were neutral. We're not opposed to a model in which police officers get called to um, schools whenever there's an issue. We understand the difficulties that schools go through, whether it's a person having a gun inside the school or someone that is a threat to others. That is not what we're contending. We're contending that the problem is, is that we have police officers oftentimes uh, being in higher numbers here in Rhode Island than we actually do social workers. The groups opposing SROs use the slogan, counselors, not cops, arguing mental health professionals are better equipped to de-escalate situations. So when they say counselors, not cops, you would say? There's 
absolutely a need for more counselors and school psychologists, no question about it. There is an equal need for school resource officers, in my opinion. So counselors and cops. Yes, yeah. You can watch Steph's entire piece on uh, student resource officers on Rhode Island PBS Weekly this Sunday at 7.30 p.m. or online at ripbs.org slash weekly. Steph, let me begin with you. Where did this idea come from? I know the discussion's been out there, and, you, and you, it's a classic. you got both sides. And coincidentally, we had Harrison, yes. too, so we've got, we've got some of that. It's just a coincidence that he's in the piece and he's on the panel today. Uh, the idea actually came from, from Barbara, the executive director, um, and it's something that I've, I had been covering for a number of years as well, just this debate, especially in Providence, about should we have police officers in schools, should we not? There's been a movement for at least a decade now to get rid of police officers in schools. It has not been successful in any way. We still have school resource officers here in Rhode Island. And I really wanted to know, okay, so what is the landscape of SROs right now? What are they doing in the schools? And I sent an email to every superintendent in the state to ask them some questions about their SRO program. And I found out some interesting things. And if you watch the piece on Sunday, you'll see um, I feature uh, an SRO in the Bristol Warren schools who has brought a therapy dog into the school. And he's very cute, um, the dog, <laughs> um, who is helping students who have mental health crises, who have anxiety, especially coming out of the pandemic, you know, helping calm them down, helping with their social emotional needs, of course, in conjunction with social workers and counselors and other types of resources. And I thought that was really interesting because 10, 20 years ago, when you heard about a school resource officer, you thought of them as more of someone who's there to be an authority figure, who's there to, of course, discipline. Discipline or also be there just to, to stop a bad guy who's coming into the school with a gun. And we're seeing sort of this new wave of school resource officers who are more passionate about supporting and helping uh, the students. They, the SROs actually formed um, an association last year for the first time to try and get on the same page about all these things. At the same time, groups like the Black Lives Matter um, PAC and the ACLU remain concerned that some officers are continuing to remain disciplinarians and they want to see changes to that. So, is, and you'll see this in the full piece, is your issue the discipline or the fact that they're armed in school? Talk about that. Yeah, I think it's a mixture of both, right? We have teachers that are in classrooms that will defer to SROs to be able to handle behavioral health issues that, you know, maybe be better handled by a social worker or a counselor or an alternative way. Um, but it was interesting, and I'm not sure if it was in the piece, but um, we found data that would support the fact that uh, police officers, SROs, who are armed within schools actually increase the likelihood of a school shooter coming into the school and inflicting more mass casualties because of the idea that you're being met with uh, another gun or another form of violence, as well as we see data to suggest that you know, shooters, particularly school shooters, will go into schools that they have already attended in the past. And so, you know, the big thing that we want to make sure is that the kids feel safe. And we're hearing from a lot of students within Providence and urban districts that they don't feel safe with an SRO. But we also want to make sure that kids are able to go to school and have the protection from, you know, external uh, threats. And I think you know, one of the things that we find a solution in this is making sure that police officers are outside of inside the school, making sure that they can respond 
to a potential threat from you know outside of campus where there's an immediate response, but there's an overwhelming fear within urban districts that police officers are going to inflict harm on students of color that you know we've seen in the past. Well, first, I think it should be left to the discretion of the local school committee, you know, whether they, and I believe that's the current state of the law. I, you know, I think school committees, uh, they're elected because they have a connection uh, that the voters have uh, observed, uh, a connection that they have with the schools, the local schools, and they're fit to run them. So I think a lot of the SRO questions can be answered by school committees. and. You know, I think uh, Harrison's brought up some valid issues, but I think those can be addressed locally. But it also seems like there may be a disconnect between the urban core and, and maybe out in, if you're in Bristol, like you talked about, <clears throat> with the dog, or in a South Kingstown, or a Cumberland. It, yes and no, because, I mean, one of the first things, because I, I spoke to the ACLU for the piece that's going to run in the Globe, and the, one of the first cases they brought up was something that happened in Narragansett where a student flipped the bird to a police officer and he, the officer took him to the ground and arrested him and there ended up being a lawsuit that was settled this year. So I think there have been incidents that happen in, in towns in addition to the urban core. But yes, certainly in the urban core, um, there have been more concerns with, uh, for example, we've, had, we've seen students bring weapons to school in Providence or we've seen um, students in Pawtucket um, get into altercations with school resource officers, for sure. I get the concern about the discipline, and you talked about that in the piece, too, mm -hmm. about you can't substitute. The, the officer's going to be like, look, that's your issue. We're just here for, for other things. But what about the argument that if there is a school shooter there, to have somebody armed in the building when seconds count, let alone minutes, as opposed to have to having calling somebody and it's five minutes and he can't get in the building and all of that. What about that? Because we've seen that on college campuses yep. too. There's a big, after Virginia Tech all those years mm -hmm. ago. So what about that argument to have an officer in the school armed and ready to go? Yeah, it's a situation where, you know, I think conventional thought and certainly something that I personally thought would be, yeah, we need an officer immediately to respond. But uh, there was a report that was put out uh, since 1999 with the school shooting in Columbine all the way to now that suggests that um, you know having an SRO does not prohibit any school shooter from creating mass casualty. But they could be there to take him down they quicker, could. no? They, they could, and actually, but data also suggests that there have been more instances in which teachers have submitted or has restrained school shooters uh, than SROs. And this is given over a 20-year period. This isn't you know, isolated incidents. And so for us, it's one of those things where we have to look at the data. We have to make sure that not only people feel safe, but people are safe. And I think sometimes those two things are conflated. And the it report that he's referencing, I'll say, also acknowledged that they cannot count if any school shootings were prevented because of the presence of an armed officer in the school. It also, it's a financial issue too, because Steph's piece talked about, you know, 65 versus 310 schools. There was a big, after every mass shooting, it seems that let's get school resource officers at every school. It's not tenable for the local towns, right? Because then you have to take a, you know, we have a hard enough time getting police officers to, to round out minimum manning to begin with, right? Yeah, but you know, if, if the uh, proliferation of these mass murders in schools schools show anything, it's that it doesn't necessarily happen in the urban core. It happens everywhere. And mm. so that's why 
I know many of the outlying towns have SROs. I, I believe they have one in Situate. I believe they have one at uh, in Foster. They have one at Barrington almost, High School. It's almost, so yeah. it's almost every single it's, town. It's almost, state. yeah, I think it's almost impossible to predict. But not every predict. school. Not every, every town school. with every school. It's right. impossible to predict what a, a crazy person with a gun is going to do. And that's, that's really the essence of the problem mm. with these school shootings, is that no matter what you do with the Second Amendment, you've got to stop crazy people from having guns. Mm. And we haven't been able to do that as a society. And I think, you know, the counselors, not cops movement, I think if there is one clear thing that we can go from that I'm, you know, we're hearing from superintendents, it's more counselors in schools. Well, I think, oh, and I think in general, I mean, you have yeah. uh, cops get sent to so many, and we've talked about this post George Floyd and even before, cops get sent to so many situations where you really need a professional, I mean, they become the de facto Exactly. Mental health counselor. Yeah. Anything that surprised you when you were reporting this? Anything that stood out to you? I think actually something that surprised me was how much the two sides of this issue actually agree on a lot of things. I mean, they all believe that we need better mental health resources in schools. They all believe that we need more counselors in schools. I think there's a debate about whether police should be in schools and how exactly they should be used in schools. But the goal of everyone I spoke to was the same, which was to support students. It's just how we get there and how we do it properly. Okay, again, make sure you see uh, Steph's full piece Sunday night on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. The other big issue, uh, well, it's been an ongoing issue, housing in Rhode Island, the soaring prices, we, uh, the, the increases here for apartments are one of the highest in the country, if not the highest. We're also going, Harrison, let me begin with you on this, we're going into the, the winter season with, with the homeless. I mean, we could probably do two hours on housing, but the legislature legislature has, has passed some laws to try to make it easier to relax some zoning codes in various towns. Narragansett particularly is pushing back a little bit on that, and I think you're going to see that. Yeah, we're seeing that all throughout the state when it comes to uh, local municipalities feeling like they were left out of this process. Of course, we have, you know, Representative June Speakman, who represents Warren, in which the Warren Council felt like, hey, you know, you can come to us, and, and that wasn't the case, or at least that's what they're saying. And so um, there may have to be revisions within uh, particular legislation that, you know, I think some municipalities have felt was poorly written. But I think at the end of the day, I think all of us uh, agree, as every single year happens, that there's a real homelessness issue here in Rhode Island. It's the affordability of things, and, and it's folks that, you know, can't afford to live in, in every town, never mind, you know, places like Providence or, or Cranston. And so, um, you know, certainly, you know, we allocated a lot of money this year towards housing. Um, but, you know, I don't think that um, we have to be stopped there. I think we continue to find new ways to provide folks shelter in the short term as well as in the long term. Well, when I was in the General Assembly, one of the most oft-repeated mantras was we we shouldn't be doing things as one size fits all. This new law, Harrison is right, it's a one size fits all. It is the paradigm of a one size fits all because what they've done, what the General Assembly did last year, in essence, is they removed all discretion for local zoning boards and planning boards and town councils who create the zoning ordinances. They, they eliminated, eliminated all that discretion and now it is, there's one rule, it's, it's been created by the General Assembly, and you have to follow it. And, of course, there's going to be a lot of blowback, I think, especially when people start seeing the effect of this legislation. 
know, there are a lot of towns in this state that have a lot of beautiful open space that could be preserved so that everybody in the state can enjoy it. That's going to be less and less likely because um, the most vulnerable towns, as I understand it, from planning people are the towns that have the most land that hasn't been developed. Mm. So um, be interesting how this plays out. I don't think you're going to see the end of towns saying this is crazy uh, with Narragansett. Are you going to see litigation, do you think? Or is it state law and you've got to follow it? Well, it, it, the General Assembly is the supreme rulemaking authority of the state. And it's going to be hard to challenge the law. This is well within their wheelhouse to do this. Mm. I think you're going to see a lot of very angry people once they start seeing the manifest effects of this law. Yeah, and I, I think we're just going to keep seeing this push-pull between the state and local municipalities because there is a massive housing crisis, and we do need more housing as soon as possible. That's the and only thing that's going to bring the rents down is if there's too many, right? And, but you can't I'm build not it an overnight. economist, but it's going to help. It would help. Um, but and you pay your rent every month, don't you? Oh, I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the General Assembly was answering this call uh, uh, from ev everyone, practically, that we need to build more housing, do something about this. And so I think there will be more laws that the state imposes upon towns and cities, and they're going to push back because they want to retain local control. And I think what I would be watching is... How much is this going to slow down the production of new housing because municipalities and the state government are fighting? What do you think about Johnson and Wales? And we may see some other colleges do this. So many uh, kids take up off-campus housing that Johnson and Wales says you need to do three years on campus, and that might free up some apartments. What do you think about that? Yeah, I do think, anything? You know, I think it, 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 it's going to be a part of the solution, hopefully. Um, you know, I think for many college kids that are, are, you know, within school, you know, the affordability of things, whether they're on campus or off campus, yeah, I, don't, I don't know how much that really makes a difference to them based on, you know, a lot of the kids that are going into school now. But, um, you know, we've got to make sure that we work with universities, you know, Brown University, um, URI, you know, colleges all throughout the country are trying to find ways to meet uh, their community's needs while also meeting, you know, folks increasingly going to school. Um, and I think if we uh, take the approach of working with municipalities and the universities that they are in. Um, we're going to be able to come up with some sort of solution. But, I mean, it's not going to be the solution that, you know, is going to solve all of our issues. Okay. Let's go to uh, outrageous and or kudos, and then we have a couple of other things that we want to get to. Nick, let's begin with you this week. Outrage or kudo? Well, I think I'll just do a kudo this week. I've, I've used it before, but it's really nice to see. Um, there's so much new work in this state that the DOT has, you know, constructed beautiful new roads. And the graffiti, I could swear, the graffiti pace has slowed down or where it's been defacing our, our beautiful highways that we've spent so much money on as taxpayers, they've been painted over by the DOT. It's really nice to see that. I don't know what, it, uh, maybe it's uh, Peter Alvedi's program to end the graffiti. I don't know, but it's really nice to see. The good guys keeping up with the bad guys, right? So far. It's a constant battle. So Ste far. Steph, what do you have? I do have a kudos <coughs> for part-time Westerly resident Taylor Swift, who was named <laughs> Time, Time Person right. of the Year. And before our viewers, you know, write me off, go read the timepiece of the Person of the Year decision um, 
what she has done for the music industry, for the economy. For the NFL. For the <laughs> NFL, for the for the craft bead friendship bracelet industry. I, I mean, of course she's a brilliant singer-songwriter, and I'm, I'm a fan, full disclosure. Um, <laughs> I, I think it was a year where women and girls came together, and the Barbie movie was part of that and everything, but I think it was a great move, and people are totally criticizing the person of the year choice. Oh, I thought it was a bold choice. And I, I thought it was really, yeah. I thought it was the right choice. Yeah. Not one person did not talk about Taylor Swift this year. Yeah. And so I, I people should go read the article because it was really good. Definitely. I, I had my, I was, I was talking to my mom, and my mom said, "Why is Taylor Swift? The, the, <laughs> why? Out of all, tell yeah. to read the Time magazine. <laughs> you gotta read article. the story. Exactly. The, uh, the Wall Street Journal. Um, one of the columnists. Uh, said exactly what you just said. She was an economic force everywhere she went, all over the world. Um, yeah, she has more than just another rock star, put yeah, it that way. She has an international tour next year, and, and countries are begging her to come to their country so that they can feel the economic effects that yeah. cities in the U.S. Yeah, felt. you bet. She's right. her own little GDP. Um, what do you got? <laughs> I just want to give kudos uh, during this uh, holiday time to all the families that are putting food on the table for their for their kids and. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people are, are going through some financial hardships and um, we want to keep saying, keep doing the good work and uh, hope that everybody have a good holidays. Three kudos. All right. I'm in a holiday spirit. You know, I normally don't Hanukkah like the code. Yeah. Happy story. Hanukkah. It started on uh, Thursday night. Um, let's go. It would not be a show with Steph Machado if we didn't have an update on cannabis. How many times <laughs> do we talk about it's going to get legalized, that it's going to take a year to get the commission picked? Now I read your story and I'm stunned that it's been a year already. I mean, the time is flying yeah. by. So bring us up to date. The, the point of your story was how was the first year? Was it on target? And what are the projections going forward? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and we don't have the November numbers yet, so I only had 11 months of sales data, not 12. But the first 11 months, $63 million worth of uh, recreational cannabis was sold. That doesn't include the medical. Um, and it, it's probably on track to be about $70 million for the first year, which is uh, roughly on track with projections. It, they didn't meet projections for the for the for last fiscal year, so their projections for this fiscal year, I think they were more realistic. And so right now they seem to be on track with um, what the state thought the sales would bring in. But you know we still don't have new stores open, and it sounds like maybe we won't even have new stores open in 2024. We'll have to see. The new Cannabis Control Commission has not actually taken over the industry because of the long delay to name this commission, and now they are coming up with their rules and regulations, including how they will decide who gets these 24 new licenses to sell cannabis. And a lot of those businesses were complaining that, look, we're all ramped up and ready to go, and we might have to go out of business because we can't we can't wait forever. Yeah, and you're referring to the cultivators, the people right. who are Risk. growing cannabis. So, you know, they're a little bit happier because the medical marijuana dispensaries are allowed to sell recreational, so now the cultivators at least have more places to sell their product. We have seven um, medical-slash-recreational dispensaries that are open, but there's supposed to be these other 24 stores that were in the law that passed in May of 2022, and we're not really close to having those stores open yet. They haven't even come up with the rules of how they're going to pick them. I wondered whether the state was going to tax itself out because it's so expensive. I mean, we've always joked, people say, why don't I just go to my dealer because it's a lot less expensive. Not my dealer, but maybe your dealer. Um, but people seem to be willing to pay the money. I think the reason that 
the state legalized cannabis is they wanted the money. It certainly, certainly couldn't have been for the welfare of young Rhode Islanders because it's decimating them. 20 seconds, Harrison. Yeah, I think uh, part of the piece of legislation that you know maybe is not talked about on the financial end is the expungement element and the worker cooperatives. Uh, haven't really seen a lot of updates regarding that and would like to see you know, there would be some movement. There are folks that have been locked up due to the war on drugs um, that are still not out of prison. When you're not doing SRO pieces, maybe that's your next. He's giving you a follow-up. It's for, a really uh, good point. And those, some of those 24 new stores are supposed to go to the worker co-ops. All right. That is all the time we have. Nick and Harrison and Steph, great to see you. Folks, come back here next week as a lively experiment continues. We hope you have a great week and a good weekend. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.